Hello and welcome to Plattress. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Strong Poison by Dorothy Sayers. So this is one of my favorite books and I think that it is romance adjacent and so I convinced Lane to read it. Um, I really love Lord Peter and hopefully you guys will enjoy it too. Uh, so this is actually number six in the Lord Peter Whimsy Mysteries. It's a pretty lengthy series. There are quite a few books in it. And it was published in 1930. And unlike some of the romance-adjacent reads we do that are part of a wider series, the other books preceding it in the series don't really have any romantic element at all. No, no. In fact, in some of the other books, like it's uh, conspicuously absent. He'll go to he'll go to visit his love interest and they'll say, but that's for a different day. <laughs> so like it's like literally off the page. Yeah. Um, and I think I still think this could be a standalone. I reread it and after I reread it, I thought, oh well, I mean, it probably could benefit if you read some of the first in the series, but I do think it's probably okay on its own. I would say you have to have read at least one previous whimsy. Yeah. I'd say probably Whose Body. Yeah. Just because I do think you don't get a lot of Peter's character development in this one at all. Yeah. And I think especially arguing it from a romantic point of view of thinking like are he and Harriet a fun couple, you do need to have a sense of who Peter is. Yeah. To get why they're so fun. Sure. All right. Well, let's get to the jacket. Here we go. Lord Peter Whimsey comes to the trial of Harriet Vane for a glimpse at one of the most engaging murder cases London has seen in years. Unfortunately for the detective, the crime's details are distractingly salacious, and there is little doubt that the woman will be found guilty. A slightly popular mystery novelist, she stands accused of poisoning her fiancé, a literary author and well-known advocate of free love. Over the course of a few weeks, she brought strychnine, prussic acid, and arsenic, and when her lover died, the police found enough poison in his veins to kill a horse. But as Lord Peter watches Harriet in the dock, he begins to doubt her guilt and to fall in love. As Harriet awaits the hangman, Lord Peter races to prove her innocence, hoping that for the first time in his life, love will triumph over death. Bad jacket. <laughs> It's not a great jacket, although I, you get the elements that you need, which is that Harriet's in jail for poisoning her ex-lover. Not fiancé. No, well, that's true. Not fiancé. Definitely not fiancé, which is a big plot point. <laughs> um, and that Peter falls in love with her. Right. But, but I would say this doesn't capture the spirit at all of the book. Oh, no. And I mean, that's really... That's really why you read the Lord Peter books, in my opinion. They are, they're so good. So you heard this was published in 1930. Dorothy Sayers was writing at the same time as Agatha Christie. So she's a contemporary of Agatha Christie. They were in the same like writing circle. So they knew each other. They influenced each other, whatever. I, I like Agatha Christie. I have nothing against her books, but she's never been a favorite of mine. And I think that's because of the character development. So this is something Lane and I have talked about a lot, that we really like good characters and good character development. And I think that's the major strength of Dorothy Sayers. Yes. 
Yeah. And so when you read these books, you get, so yes, Lord Peter is a detective. You could say, oh yeah, well, Poirot is a detective too. But Poirot is just a caricature of a detective, right? Peter is an actual fully developed person with his own anxieties, his own issues. Yes, he likes being a detective, um, but there's more to him than just that. Right. And while I think there's less time delving into his individual psychiatric makeup than there might be in other non-mystery novels, what I think is so great about Dorothy Sayers as an author is she definitely gives you enough if you care to pay attention. Yes. Yeah. What I One of the things I like about Lord Peter as a detective is that so first of all, his name, he's Lord Peter. He's the son and brother of a duke. He's rich. He does not need to do this. So he's an amateur detective in that, you know, he's not doing this for money. He's doing it because he doesn't have anything else to do with his life. So why not be a detective? He also collects old books. He also collects old books. Yes, that's his other passion in life. And he was an officer in World War One, so he also he suffers from definitely has PTSD. Yes, so he suffers from shell shock, mm-hmm. as they called it. Um, and he has a very close relationship with his his valet. Yeah. Yes, his man. I was gonna, I was going to call him his man. I was like, oh, is that the right word? Yeah, his man, Bunter. So if you like Lane and I really enjoy competency porn, you will enjoy Bunter a lot. He is the perfect gentleman's gentleman. Well, and I'm not going to lie to you, readers. I've read five of the first six Whimsy books in the last three weeks. So I can't swear what book this happens in or which book this happens in. But there's a scene where Peter starts complaining that he hates it when Bunter talks like Jeeves and I laughed out loud. Yeah, right? Bunter is Jeeves. Bunter is Jeeves, yes. But for it's Jeeves and Worcester. For the, yes, like. yes. It's, it, Bunter is amazing. I love Bunter. Uh, so Bunter helps out. He also helps out with the detecting, the detecting work. Um, so he he's a photographer. He's an amateur photographer, so he takes photographs. and um, But mostly like, like crime scene photos. Right. No, crime scene photos. That's what I mean. So he takes photos of the crime and then he develops them himself in Lord Peter's, you know, dark room that just belongs to Bunter because Lord Peter doesn't do any photography. It's it's very interesting. That's another thing I love about the Lord Peter books is that you really get a sense of time and place. Mm-hmm. So I realized that, so it's not historical fiction in the sense that Sayers was writing in the 1930s, yes, about people who were living in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there's so much detail. There, there's so many fun things that happen in these books that I just love. So, uh, for example, there's a time, I believe this happens in one of the first five, but if it doesn't, whatever. Um, someone's out driving, and they stop in a pub, and they literally have a drink for the road. Like, they throw back some whiskey and then go out, hop in their car and, and head out. You know? It's just these little things that, that would never happen today that really make you go, oh, wow. Like, that's, this is the world that they were living in. This is how 
they lived and what they were doing. And I think it's also interesting because I think a lot of the fiction written now about that era really focuses on the decline of the aristocracy mm-hmm. and the social change sweeping Britain. Yeah. And it's interesting because while Peter, as Meg mentioned, is minor aristocracy in that he himself is not and will never be titled. He's very, very affluent. And you, even though he's incredibly observant and you're getting a lot of insight to different social classes from the different POV characters, you don't get the same sense of consciousness that these are the last days of this way of life. Yeah. yeah. And I it, think if this, anybody tried to write the Lord Peter books today, they, they'd kind of be underscored with this idea that the aristocracy was dying. Yes. In a way that they're not. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, maybe the aristocracy was dying, but Peter didn't feel that way. And Sayers writing Peter clearly didn't feel the need to insert that mentality. Yeah. There, I mean, there are very slight moments where it will creep in around the edges. So, for example, Gerald, the the Duke of Denver, so Peter's brother, uh, he's talking about planting some beech trees or something like that. And Peter's like, look, he can plant all of these trees he wants. Um, the estate's going to look great. We're not going to own it in 50 years, but whatever. I don't think that's happened yet. Yeah, no, it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened yet. But that's, you know, it, it is an example. It does happen in the books. But that's also, I mean, the first book was written in, what, 24, 25? Yeah. So what you're talking about, if we're at 1930 right now, what you're talking about was written maybe a decade after the first book? Yeah. I'm just saying these early books definitely feel ignorant of the historical reflection on the era. Yeah, they do. And and there are things there are things in the books that would never be in historical fiction that's set back then. So like I said, the drink for the road probably would be omitted from any yeah. book someone wrote because that's that's just not acceptable in our time period. We wouldn't So first of all, I don't think we would even think about it happening. And secondly, if someone did write it, I think someone, a a reader could find it offensive and so it might be cut. Or you'd think more of it as a character trait than it was. Yes. You'd be like, oh, that's the villain. Yes, yes. Oh, that guy's drinking. He's going to, drinking and driving, that's bad. Yes. Um, But I I love it. So this, you do run into some issues, so... um, characters that you are supposed to be sympathetic to, including Peter, do use racial slurs sometimes. Not in this book. Uh, Not in this book, but they, I mean, they do. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something to be aware of. It does happen. Um, So you do get a sense of the time and place, and you really do feel like you're there. So throwing that in there. I've I've only, so far in the first five of six I've read, there was only one that I felt like was too colorful in its descriptive language on people. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah. So let's get down to this book. So this book starts in the... No, I need to to talk about this for you. Okay, you talk about it for me, talk about it for me. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast, you might know that Meg loves a courtroom drama. I do, I do love a courtroom drama. And this book is book-ended... By courtroom dramas. It is. So it opens and ends with the same trial. You may not speak. It's so great. It's so great. (laughs) You're right. You had to to do that because I would have just 
<laughs> dissolves in <laughs> in how happy it makes me. So yes, <laughs> it, <laughs> this book starts in the courtroom, and one of the things I love actually about about Sayers, but about this book in particular, is how many viewpoint characters she has. So it mm-hmm. starts in the courtroom, and the viewpoint changes from paragraph to paragraph. So in one paragraph, it's the um, prosecutor. In one paragraph, it's the defense barrister. Uh, in one paragraph, it's... It's the journalist reporting on the case. Exactly. And then it, it ends in Peter's perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's really great. And she doesn't mark it. So you it, it, it throws you right into the action. So I, I think she's just a really masterful writer as well because mm-hmm. you really feel like you're part of the audience. So uh, after the courtroom drama, Peter... So after the what happens in, in the court, Peter thinks, oh my gosh, this woman is not guilty. So she didn't do it, but they're going to find her guilty. So he goes to see her. And so pause. The first pause. trial results in a hung jury. Yeah. Uh, yes. So that's why, why does it result in a hung jury? Because one of Peter's cattery, his chief caterer, <laughs> was caterer. randomly selected for the jury. And she, along with two other half people, aren't convinced of guilt. But yeah. so the first trial ends with a hung jury, which apparently in Britain at the time meant trial number two, replay with a different jury. Yeah. And this time Peter is convinced of, of Harriet. So Harriet is the woman who's accused of the crime. He's convinced Harriet of Harriet, Harriet Vane. He's convinced of Harriet's innocence. And so he goes to see her in prison. Not only is Harriet is, excuse me, not only is Peter convinced of Harriet's innocence, he also, throughout the time of the, of the trial, has fallen in love with her. So we're not exactly sure why. We don't exactly know what about her has attracted him, but he's in love with her. And so he goes to see her, and the first time he meets her, he proposes to her. And she responds with, oh, you're another one of those weird dudes obsessed with murderers. I've gotten 47 proposals via letter. Yeah. She's like, oh, man, another one. And he's like, no, I'm not like all the other men. <laughs> TM. <I'm>, exactly. <laughs> so, so Peter is trying to convince her that he's not like all the other men. He really is in love with her. Um, and he says, to prove it, I will... Uh, prove your innocence. I'll go out, make sure that you're innocent. And when you're free, then you'll be free to marry me. And she's like, okay, when I'm free, we'll talk about it again. And thus begins this book. So this is the situation and this is the mystery. Harriet, a few years back, had fallen in love with another author who, as the book jacket describes, was a free love, marriage, and, like, matrimony or social constructs. You know, everyone should be allowed to date everyone. This is all ridiculous. And she, for many years, insisted that he court her honorably. And then eventually gave in. She was like, okay, I guess he he holds these convictions. So I do love him. He loves me. I will 
live with him as man and wife without getting married. And basically ostracize myself from society as a result of these actions. Yeah. So then at some point he changes his mind and upon realizing that she's willing to change her moral convictions essentially to match his, decides to propose, at which point she sort of realizes how messed up this whole emotional situation, manipulation over morals has been and leaves him for good. I just love it so much. I just love that Harriet does that. It's so good. But over the course of the next three or four months, she and her ex-lover continue to encounter each other occasionally at social gatherings. Mm-hmm. So they're both writers. They both see each other at these writers' gatherings. And they're both a part of this post-World War One avant-garde, like, artistic movement. Yeah, exactly. And so the night that her ex-lover dies, he'd requested a meeting with her to kind of clear the air and have their final say-so. He comes over. It doesn't go particularly well or badly. Like, nobody changes where they stand. He leaves, gets in a taxi, and by the time he gets to the cousin's house where he's living at the time, he's on the verge of death and proceeds to die a few days later. At first, no one is suspicious, but after the nurse that cares for him reveals the only time she's seen anyone with those exact symptoms before, it's been arsenic poisoning, the body's exhumed, tested, and found to have lethal doses of arsenic. Yeah. Now, of course, Harriet is a mystery writer, and she has been planning on writing a book where the, the murderer kills the person using arsenic. And so mm-hmm. she's been going all around London buying all kinds of poisons. Under fake names. Under fake names. Basically because she wants to see how easy it would be to do it, to use in her book. Mm-hmm. Of course, this doesn't look too good for the jury. Right. So Peter becomes convinced of her innocence. But the difficulty is, with the exception of the scorned lover hypothesis, for Harriet, there are no motives out there at all. Mm-hmm. The, while Harriet might be a mildly successful author, her former lover was not. He was signed and published, but very little known. He has some rich relatives, but as far as anyone knows, he didn't stand to inherit anything from them. So, as far as the police can figure out, there's no financial motivation at all to kill him. He doesn't have any enemies that anyone knows of. So, beyond the... So, what's really kind of condemning Harriet here is the knowledge that they're ex-lovers and her access to arsenic. Exactly. The combination of those two things, however thin and tenuous, are all anybody had. And it also doesn't help her that one of the potential other hypotheses is that he committed suicide but didn't even know and yeah. clearly that's something that's very difficult to prove as an alternative to murder so she's pretty much up a creek yeah as far as anyone can see and as peter calls out two of the three members of her prosecution are pretty sure she did it yeah yes <laughs> yeah i mean of her defense two of the three members of her legal defense team of are pretty sure she's guilty yeah Exactly. So, so Peter does a few things. He, he investigates, obviously, and he does not to give too much away, but he does find the murderer. Um, but before that, while she's 
in her first trial, before he's ever been introduced to her, he decides he's in love with her, and what does he do upon that decision? Calls his mommy. Yeah. The, the Duchess says, of Denver. Um, who, oh my god, I love the Duchess. FYI, guys. The Dowager Duchess, Duchess of Denver is amazing. She's um, incredible. I would call I my love, mommy, too. I love so much about the whimsy family dynamics. <laughs> because basically, to break it down, Peter's mother is clearly like Peter, but is a woman of means and station who has learned to repress it. Yes. His oldest brother is a total doofus. Total doof. He's not, he, he has no, he's not malicious at no, no, all. No, no, no. He's just, he's just a doof. Yeah. And the current Duchess of Denver is the worst. Yeah. She's awful. And then there's a sister. Peter has, Peter and the Duke have a sister named Mary who fancies herself a socialist. Yes. But in a very, like, unaware of her own privilege kind of way. Yeah. But she's in love with the chief of police. We're, like, yes. the specter friend of Lord Peter's. Yes, Peter's friend. Um, yeah. Parker. Oh, Charlie I, Parker. I just, I really, I just really love it. No, me too. So it, it's just a very interesting familial dynamic. But so when Peter's like, shit, the woman on the stand is innocent. Shit, she's perfect for me. He calls his mom and says, come to the trial with me so you can see her. <laughs> Meanwhile, Harriet's ignorant of all of this and has never spoken to any of them. Um, but one of the other things that Peter does is he hires his friend, who's the best defense counsel in Britain, Sir mm -hmm. Impey Biggs, to um, represent her mm -hmm. as well. So he, he's putting all of his resources to either finding her guilty or at least getting her found guilty by the jury. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't, he doesn't need not to guilty. prove it, but he needs her to not be in jail because he needs to marry Harriet. Mm -hmm. That said, he's attempting not just to prove the improbability of her guilt, but to fully exonerate her by finding the true guilty party. Yeah, I mean, that's his preference, so. It's amazing. Yeah, and I mean, luckily for Harriet, Peter's the really good detective, so... So basically, Peter, as Meg mentioned, introduces himself by showing up in her jail cell, like telling her he has permission to be there, question her, and act as one of her attorneys. Mm -hmm. But then starts off his investigation and his questions by asking her to marry him. And she immediately turns him down. Immediately is like, no, what's wrong with you? And he's like, hmm, I may have come about this the wrong way. Right, he might be like, oh, interesting. I'm in a position of power as one of the brilliant minds attempting to free her. And so by saying, and now you should marry me, this may be a conflict of interest. May, may not have been the best and brightest way for me to She might not me. feel super empowered to be honest with me, and this may have made her uncomfortable. Yes. And I, I do, I think it's just great, too, because he, it shows Peter realizing Oh, I fucked up. Mm -hmm. And that's that's also, Sarah's great gift. Over the course of the rest of the book, while he's investigating the murder and flirting with her and getting to know her, he also lists various reasons why she should, why she should consider him. Yeah. Yes. And so he does say, I will say one of his arguments is, I've been told I'm quite a fine lover. <laughs> Which is also so good because at the end, when she's trying to convince him he doesn't really want her after all, 
she's like, you are aware I've had a lover. And he's like, well, so have I, but. Yeah. yeah. Right? Oh, my God. He's so good. So forward thinking. It's, I mean, it's just really, it really is great. And it's not, I don't want to say, oh, it's forward thinking, you know, whatever. I, it was I just, for 1930. It was. It was for 1930. But it also was just, this is just what Peter will do. He's like single-minded about his obsessions, right? So he's going to do whatever it, whatever it takes to get them. And so she, all of their interactions through this whole book are while she's in jail and he's there during her visiting hours. And so not only are they talking about the case, but they do it by like him hypothesizing different ideas yeah. in the context of a book and her coming up with the plot around him and helping him think through things. And it really just kind of describes how well suited they are because their brains clearly work in similar ways, but his mm -hmm. from the perspective of trying to solve real life crimes and her from the perspective of trying to invent fictional crime. Yeah. And so their yeah. conversations are just so fun. Yeah. So, like, for example, he's like, well, what, what do you think one of the motivations would be if you were the murderer? And she was like, well, maybe it would be to sell more books. All my books are selling really well right now. What if, you know, you murdered someone and then went to jail and then that book would make a lot of money and then I could give that money to my dear daughter who really needs the money, right? Do it all for the child. Mm-hmm. But then she's like, but wait, actually that wouldn't work because once a murderer is killed by the state, their money belongs to the state. And they're like, okay, well, that didn't work. You know, just, yeah, the way they talk it through, it's, it's really nice. Uh, so I said that the whole first chapter starts out with different point of view characters. And this continues throughout the book. There are several point of view characters. So of course there's um, Lord Peter. But then um, we also have Miss Clinton. So she's the head of the cattery. And she was the one who was on the jury. And then there's also Miss Murchison, who's, who also works for the cattery. Um, and we get to be in their heads for a long time. And that's one of the things I love about Sayers as well, is we, we're not always with, with Peter, who has this innate sense of superiority and privilege, right? In the other books, you're usually with Peter. You are. To the point that in some of her short stories where she tries to fake you out by which head you're in, you know it's Peter in disguise because it's always Peter's perspective. Yeah, yes. But in this case, she just does She does such a good job with Miss Clemson. She does such a good job with Miss Murchison. These are, these are probably women who are more like Sayers than Peter's is. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, than Peter is, right? Mm -hmm. So these are women they're spinsters who have to work for their money. Um, but it's yeah. also different how interesting they are. Yes. And like how well, how, how distinct their voices are within the text. Yes. Uh, Miss Clemson is a woman of no notoriety who has a ton to say. Yes. And really needs to think through and talk through her dilemmas and sometimes in unreasonably long-winded letters to Peter. Whereas with Marchison, while she had a career of some notoriety, mm -hmm. is now very taciturn mm -hmm. and deliberate in her speech. And so to see these two characters who in a lot of books would have been chalked up to spinster finding worth later in life. Yes. Such distinct voices is a real testament to Sayers' talent. Exactly. Well, and there, you really get the feeling that 
these these women who could have been plot devices mm-hmm. actually have an interior life and, and they actually have a life on their own. And yes, they're helping out yes. Peter, but that's a job that they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not their whole life. And to the degree that it's become a bigger part of their life than they're intended, it's because they've been empowered to participate in something so much bigger than they ever thought they would be. Yeah. So one of the other things I just love about this book is the spiritualism aspect. <laughs> so Miss Clemson, she she's older. She's an older spinster. She's always walked on the right side of the law. You know, she's she's been very pure. She's very religious. Very religious. And yet it somehow comes out that she she has all this knowledge of spiritualism. So I guess she dabbled with it in her youth. No, the, they say she during one of the previous mysteries when she was up at a local like establishment for a long time, one of the other residents had been a con artist who revealed all the secrets of spiritualism to her. So she's never yep. been interested in it independently, but the only real education she's got in it is how to use it as a con. Yes, and she, she does use it as a con in this book. But she's so morally conflicted. <laughs> she's so, and that's, I mean, that's what's so amazing about it is she's so conflicted because again, like Lane said, she's super, she's very religious. She all, she wants to do the ethical and the right thing. And she's, she talks herself around to convincing herself that she is doing the right thing by fooling another woman into believing that her dead relatives are talking to her. And her dead lover. Her dead, yes. My favorite part of this, though, is figure, finding out that Miss Clemson's, like, conscience is the voice of Lord Peter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there is, it's just, they're just really, really great. And they really add so much to the book, I think. Yeah. So, Lane, do you think that this could have been a romance novel? No. I think it could have if instead of having the other viewpoint characters, we just had it be uh, Harriet. Yeah, so I think that's the difficulty for me with conceiving it as a romance novel. This is very much Peter falling in love, and you get why Harriet's awesome from reading the text, but you don't have any sense of her interior life. Yes. Beyond sort of her gratitude for being let off. That's true. And so I think to be an authentic romance novel equal focus has to be given to both sides of the romance. Yeah. Even if you still are only from one character's perspective, you have to get a sense of the other person falling in love. Yeah. And you just, while Harriet is clearly into Peter, like you're not getting anything about her really beyond her murder contingent personality traits. That's, I mean, that's true. So, how does this book end, Lane? Does she accept Peter's proposal? I don't want to spoil it, okay. but also, no. She doesn't. She doesn't accept his proposal, and I love it. I love it so much. I have a hunch what I'm going to say at the end of this, because I haven't read beyond this, dear listeners. I'm going to say that Peter and Harriet's arc could be a romance novel. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this book in a real romance novel would have been like chapters one through three. That's if fair. like you cut out the mystery and you cut out the other POVs, the part of this that is just their romance would be a very like prologue part. 
Okay. Like, that's this fair. Is, this is the how they met, not the how they fall in love. That's that's fair. So I, okay, I'm going to spoil a little bit, I guess. It's not as, I don't think it's a spoiler. I'm going to talk about the viewpoints of the next book. Okay. So, right. So this book is primarily Peter's perspective, although we have other viewpoint characters. Mm-hmm. The next book is primarily Harriet's perspective. Oh, that's fun. Yes. And the book after that, which I would argue is Sayers's like masterpiece book. Um, it's called Gaudy Night. No, Gaudy Night. The next one is Red Herrings. Then yeah, after I'm sorry. That, I'm Car talking Cave. about the three that we're going to talk about, which are Strong yeah, Poison, Epic Car Cave. You're skipping several books in the series. Yes, I am, because they don't, they're not romance adjacent. We don't talk about yeah. those. Okay. <laughs> we don't talk about those here. So we have Strong Poison, which is primarily Peter. We have um, Habit's Car Case, which is primarily Harriet, with mm-hmm. a little bit of Bunter, a little bit of Peter. And then we oh, have POV. Mm-hmm. I know, so exciting, right? And then Gaudy Knight is all Harriet all the time. So there's no other viewpoint character. Oh. Yes. And I, it's amazing. It's just really amazing, guys. I'm excited to get, we'll be reviewing it. Basically, at this point, we're just one, trying to space out our romance adjacent reads, and two, waiting on me to actually read them. Yes. But we're, I mean, we're also trying to live through the pandemic right now. So, you know, you might be hearing a lot more about Lord Peter soon. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I have read, as I said, five of the six in the last two and a half, three weeks. That's, that's you know, that's all we're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then my, I will end with this. So the, actually the reason that I read these books, so I'm, I read some mysteries, but I'm not a huge mystery person. My mother loves mysteries, so she used to love these books. And she she's talked to me about Lord Peter, about how great he is, blah, blah, blah. And I remember being like, yeah, yeah, mom, whatever. But then I read a science fiction book called To Say Nothing of the Dog, which, yes, which relies... We'll be reviewing someday. Yes. But it, it relies heavily on references to other novels. And it a lot of them referenced Lord Peter, and Dorothy Sayers. And I thought, well, maybe I should read them. If Connie Willis thinks these are worth reading, I should read them. Um, and then I did, and I was like, oh my God, these books are so good. So anyway, I'm now obsessed with Lord Peter, um, especially Peter and Harriet together. I will say, I'm loving Dorothy Sayers overall. This is not a super consistent series. I agree with that. The yes. weak books are really weak. This isn't like when we talk about Bujold and Peters, where, like, whatever, the weakest in the series is still one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah. Like, I will never reread some of these. That's true. I will obsessively reread some of them. Yes. That's the so, thing. Like, but, I, have, I have definitely reread um, four or five books in the series, and then there are others that I will never pick up again. And so that's the only thing I'd throw out because clearly we're recommending this book, but it's like the midpoint in the series. Yeah. And so I, I would just put out the warning that while this book is exceptional and Sayers is an exceptional writer, she also sometimes, as we said, uses racist language of the time. And even if you can look past that, I think both Megan, my least favorite thing is on at least two occasions, she writes out the main characters solving puzzles yeah it's painfully boring 
It's really boring. And I mean, I hate to skip pages when I read a book, but I will skip them when someone's solving a crossword puzzle. Over, like, several chapters. Uh So, just, like, know we love her, know we recommend her, know the character development is amazing, know that this book is, like, an incredible prologue to a romance. And it's so well-developed and it's so funny. But also know that, like, while we're saying you should read them all, you also probably will not like some of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, her her weakest are, in my opinion, just kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes, there are the, raci- the racist, the racial slurs in them as well. So. And some of them are, are bigger offenders in the, of that than others. Oh, yes. I mean, this one, I don't think this book had any... People of color in it. Yes, well, <laughs> that also is a <laughs> part of the issue, but, you know. But well, overall, really recommend, and I, as someone who hasn't experienced it yet, am really looking forward to the rest of Harriet and Peter's love story. Yes. Um, my final note is that if you ever get confused about courtesy titles, these books will clear it up for you real quick because, you know, Peter will teach you how to do it. There isn't a single passage that describes it, but the overall experience of reading them definitely will catch you up to speed. Yeah, you just get, Im- like like I said, you get immersed in the world and you really understand what how these people are motivated um, and what their, their deep-seated thoughts on their whole life is. So it's very helpful in that way. I will say, while I didn't love a lot of the short stories that I've read so far from her. I did love the one about Gherkins, Lord Peter's nephew. Yes. <laughs> but then this is just supposed to be thinking of, of courtesy titles and nicknames and like sort of the aristocratic structure. Because Lord Peter's nephew, who is a Viscount in his own right, because the heir, he's the heir to the dukedom, Lord Peter calls Gherkins. Yes. <laughs> that like cracked me up every time. Yes, it's, it's so good. Well, thank you so much for listening. And if you are enjoying the podcast or if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe.